0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right. Look at Haggai. So last week, uh, continuing in our studies in the Minor Prophets, we looked at the book of Zephaniah. Um, We saw that knowing where where everything's headed in creation helps us uh, prepare Um, To shelter well, right? It doesn't necessarily make the path easier, but knowing where God's taking all of creation, it helps us to get ready for that destination. And so we can endure the bad while we can anticipate the good and all that He's doing. (coughs) We talked about Him being the source of good and the user of bad because we saw in Zephaniah that people had kind of defaulted into thinking that God was not at work and that He wasn't doing anything uh, good or bad, and they were kind of viewing themselves independently. We talked about the the humility and obedience that comes with finding our shelter in Christ. We talked about how God is a merciful God, even though we could criticize him and think that he is a uh, wrathful God only, the fact that he communicates his coming wrath uh, shows his uh, side of mercy. And so we talked about um, him being merciful and us being humble to run to him for shelter. We talked about finding hope, uh, not in what is passing away, but in all that is still to come. And we talked about that specific verse that talks about him quieting us with his love, right? And that um, his assurance and his comfort and his peace can quiet us in the midst of our turmoil, in the midst of our circumstances. I related it to uh, my experiences of being able to go into the bedroom and and take Apollos, who's frustrated, angry, hurt, whatever it may be, and that oftentimes when he's in my arms, he immediately goes quiet. Um, That There's a, a love aspect that I'm able to show him through that, uh, that just kind of brings all of his concerns and frustrations uh, to naught, and, and he's able to, to just quietly fall asleep with me. And so um, hopefully you're uh, meditating on that continually and experiencing that yourself. Um, which brings us today to the book of Haggai. I'll, I'll admit that when I knew Lauren was going to be out of town this week uh, for Snowbird, I was really relieved when I looked to see how many chapters were in Haggai, because I was like, how much time am I going to have to study while I'm watching the kids, I won't be able to break away like I normally do. And so I saw two chapters and I was like, yes, like this is a perfect time for a two chapter book. Um, And then I saw the whole book was about the rebuilding of the temple. And I was like, what are we going to do with that? Um, And so I felt like uh, it was God's grace that it was a short book, uh, but also God's challenge in that I'm not going to make this easy for you. You're going to have to spend some time meditating on it. And so Thankful for the shortness of the book, but also thankful for the challenge of the book as well to kind of reflect and see what does God have to say to us today, thousands of years later, um, after the temple has been destroyed, the sacrifice system has been put to rest. Like, What do we do with a book where the prophet is primarily talking about the people rebuilding God's temple? And so we're going to take a look to see what God has to say to us today about uh, about our priorities and how we are prioritizing things in our life, And so our summary sentence for today is, Because our spiritual health is far more important than our physical health, God calls us to prioritize Him over everything else in life, even when our circumstances would tempt us to do otherwise. Because our spiritual health is far more important than our physical health, God calls us to prioritize Him over everything else in life, even when our circumstances would tempt us to do otherwise. For our kids that might be listening or are here in our buildings with us, we must always place God above everything else in our life. All right, so what we're going to see in this book is some tension between physical health, physical comfort, uh, physical priorities, and how they mesh with the spiritual side of things and, and which one is to take precedent in our life. Um, And we're going to see that God's expectations are obviously uh, that we would prioritize the spiritual over the physical. And so that's the challenge of Haggai's message to the people of Israel at that time. And it's still the challenge to us thousands of years later, even though maybe what he is addressing with the people isn't as relevant. uh, I think we're going to see some parallels to how it really is relevant for us uh, today as well. Give you a little bit of timeline, because what we've been doing in the Minor Prophets We've been looking at messages and themes that were leading up to the Babylonian captivity, right? And so God's talking a lot about day of the Lord. Uh, The people of Israel have been unfaithful in the land with their kingdom. Uh, They've been unjust in their dealings with each other. Uh, They've been deceitful. They've been violent. And so God has continually had this message of judgment's coming, judgment's coming, day of the Lord's coming, repent, get things right or I'm going to step in with this army, right? The army has now come. The the people of Israel have been exiled, uh, and now we're on the other side of it with the book of Haggai. People are actually coming back now to the the land of Israel, okay? So we've kind of fast-forwarded through uh, several decades where there was this anticipation that the Babylonian Empire was coming. Boom, the Babylonian Empire showed up, and so these last three books in the Minor Prophets are all prophets that are dealing with uh, the post-exilic time, that, that post-time of exile where the people have now come home. Okay, So they were carried off away. Babylon seized control. It's where you have uh, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You have the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Right? There's a change of power that takes place, though, while the people of Israel are out of their land. Babylon takes over, but in the midst of their rule, the Persian Empire takes over. And it's the Persians who permit the people of Israel to go back home, okay? So Babylon overthrows Jerusalem about 586 B.C. Then the Persians overthrow the Babylonians in about 538 B.C. So it doesn't last real long. 586, Babylon's over Jerusalem. Uh, Then they go into exile. Persia overthrows Babylon in 538. And then the remnant starts to come home. The people of Israel start to return, those who choose to, start to come back around 536 BC. Haggai is writing 522, 520, all right? And he brings this message about the temple being rebuilt. Uh, Eventually, the temple is rebuilt uh, in 516. And then maybe the one that we're most familiar with in the rebuilding of the temple would be the book of Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah is not rebuilding the temple. What's Nehemiah rebuilding? He's rebuilding the walls around the temple. Okay, so that takes place about 444 BC. Okay, so just to kind of recap that timeline 586, Jerusalem falls to Babylon. Then the Persians overthrow Babylon um, around 538. Then the remnant comes home around 536. Haggai's writing in between 522 and 520. Um, particularly, the book is written about 520. Uh, the temple is rebuilt in 516, and then the Nehemiah comes to rebuild the walls in 444. Now, here's what's interesting about some of the background here, is that God had clearly communicated prior to the Babylonian captivity um, that God was going to raise up an individual who was going to allow the people of Israel to go back home and do this. So if you read, and we won't take the time, but if you read in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 13... These are God's faithful promises that through Cyrus, he is going to release his people to come back home with the purposes of the temple being rebuilt, okay? So this should have been an expectation that Israel had that yes, we're being carried off, but we are gonna come back home. And even though we're gonna watch the temple fall when Jerusalem crumbles, God has already made provision for this to come back, um, that it is going to be rebuilt, okay? Okay. Um, so God had faithfully communicated this. Now, there's a time gap here, right? Because what I shared with you is that the remnant comes home in about 536, and Haggai's writing in 520. So about 16 years have passed since these people have been home, and there's still no temple. And so that's cause for concern. God's concerned about it. He presses that concern onto Haggai, who then presses that concern back to the people. 16 years have passed since we've come home. Why is there no temple, okay? And so it's important for us to think through, well, why isn't there a temple? Um, if the temple is so important in the life of Israel, and we know it to be the tabernacle prior to the temple, then the temple, why would they have not rebuilt this by the time they had come home 16 years later? Well, we know from the book of Ezra, there was some conflict that made it hard to, to rebuild the temple. So if you go to Ezra chapter 4, Verse 1 It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asherhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, uh, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. It sounds like a group of kids kind of arguing about who gets to do what here, right? And so they do come back. They do have the intentions of bringing the temple back. But then the Samaritans, who are kind of these... Uh, half-blooded Jews who have married with other nations, they're like, hey, let's, let's get on, in on that too. We've talked before about the Jewish Samaritan tension there. I haven't studied enough here to know like, who's right and who's wrong, particularly in this situation. What I do know is that there's enough conflict here that the Samaritans react to Zerubbabel and his guys saying, we don't need your help, to where they basically frustrate the people, they work against the people, and basically everybody just says, well, fine, we won't do it. We, we just won't build it. Right? And so they had started the project, but because of some adverse conditions, they stopped. Now, that's certainly one reason why they haven't rebuilt the temple. Right, um, It's one reason, but I think there's probably some underlying things here that have contributed to why this wasn't a priority from day one when they got back. Okay? The first thing is I think they had adjusted to life in Babylon without the temple. Right? I think as a people, they had gotten used to what it looks like to worship differently than how they had previously been worshiping. They had gotten used to this new scenario, this new environment. They learned that we can physically survive without this. Right? Like they had to worship for years if they were worshiping, but we know that there were some, right? We know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel at least stayed faithful to God without the temple, without the sacrifices, without the priest, without all of that working under the, the, the umbrella of national Israel. And so I, I think the people come home and they're like, you know what, we can just keep doing it this other way. We don't have to go back to the way we were doing it before. It's, it's more convenient to do it the way that we've been doing it now lately. And so let's just not rebuild it. Like we tried, we tried, but we, we met a little bit of adversity, and so we're just going to say, you know what, we'll just we'll worship from our homes, we'll, we'll worship as families, we'll worship privately, whatever that may look like, right? They just said, you know what, we're not going to rebuild it. We're, we're not going to do it. Um, and it was easy to make that decision because they had gotten used to what it looked like to do it without the temple for a while, right? I think secondly, they had developed a mindset of taking care of self as the number one priority with their resources and time management. I think they had grown selfish while they were away in Babylon. Um, I think they had gotten used to taking care of self. I think they had gotten used to using their money, their resources, their time for their priorities. They hadn't been in the habit of giving themselves to God through the, the means that He had required of national Israel. So all of that had been old habits. New habits had to be formed because circumstances changed, right? Like they were kind of forced into it. They didn't choose to go to Babylon. They didn't choose to develop these bad habits. They just kind of got into some bad habits because of their circumstances. And now God has lifted those bad circumstances. He's changed their circumstances with the expectation of, okay, let's go back to how we were. Let's go back to worshiping the way that we were. And the people are like, okay. And then there's a little bit of adversity and they're like, no way, we're not going to do that. Right, and they, and they just go back to whatever it is they were doing while they were in Babylon. Their personal resources were being used to build their homes versus God's dwelling place. So let me, I've talked a lot about Haggai. Let's read a little bit so you can see the message that he brings to the people. In verse 1 it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Like the message here is, This doesn't make sense for you to be pouring so much of your time and energy into your life and the spiritual life of Israel has been completely neglected. It's in ruins. You're dwelling in these paneled houses and the reference there would be like, they've got some exquisite stuff going on here. They're not just like piecing together the ruins of what they came back to. They've, They've invested their time and energy and money to rebuild and to rebuild well, to rebuild luxuriously for that time. And so they've really poured some time and attention here to rebuilding their homes versus God's dwelling place. What their actions show here is that their heart and priorities were tied to themselves and not God. The paneled home stood while the temple walls didn't. And so Haggai brings a series of four messages here, two chapters, four messages. He's very specific in the timetable of these messages. And so we know It's probably uh, around the month of August until the month of December during the year 520 B.C., okay? So there's a series of four messages that come about, and he is confronting their godless, selfish priorities that have led to spiritual neglect. And and God brings them some awareness here that if they continue down this path, it's going to lead to a dead end because look what he says their circumstances really are, They they think they're doing well for themselves, but he says in verse 5, Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, and you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. God says, if you want to play this game, we'll play it. You know, like if you don't want to, if you don't want to acknowledge me and submit to me and prioritize me as your source of life, then I'm going to take your source of life away. I'm going to take the things that you rely upon to build your little personal kingdoms. I'm going to strip you of it to where you don't have access to the things that you need. These feudal personal plans were a result of their spiritual neglect, and they weren't getting the return on the investment that they were making. He says, I "Man, you're working hard, you're pouring into this, but you're not getting enough from it, right? Because he says, I'm intentionally withholding the produce of the land to get your attention that the spiritual neglect can't be tolerated moving forward, okay? So we've seen why they didn't rebuild, right? They, they got some adversity, um, but ultimately I think it was easy to give in to the adversity because they had built some bad habits, And they didn't have to worship this way anymore because they found new ways to worship in Babylon. And they had just really developed a selfish mindset of me first, and then when I've taken care of me, then we can look towards others, right? Why was it so important to God that they rebuild this, right? Like, we don't have the temple today, so God knew that, right? God knew that it was gonna fall again later. So why, why was it so important for God that they rebuild this? We find here what I just read to you is that it was pleasing to the Lord and it would honor him, right? Verse seven, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So, from, from God's perspective, there's an acceptable sacrifice here. When they put time, energy, and attention into building his house, he's pleased by their sacrifice. And it says that it honors him, it brings glory to him. How can building a structure, how can building a building bring glory and honor to God? Well, I think number one, we see that a rebuilt temple would indicate that the people still wanted and valued God in their lives, okay? There's more going on here than the building because if you read in um, 2 Samuel 7, chapter two through seven, 2 Samuel 7, chapter 2 through 7, this is where David uh, has a conversation with Nathan and says, hey, I'm not comfortable with the fact that I live in this great palace, and God's still living in the tabernacle from the time of Moses. And and he says, I want to build him something better. Seems to kind of go along with the message here of Haggai, right? Like, you guys are living in these great houses, and God's not living in anything. Like, you need to build his house, Hundreds of years earlier, David's like, hey, I'm not comfortable with my paneled you know, palace. I need to build God something. And God's like, look, I don't need, I don't need some big house. He said, we'll take care of that eventually. Right? So it's not that the structure is all that important to God, but a rebuilt temple does imply something. One, it implies that the heart of the people is inclined towards saying, I want God in my life. I value God in my life. He's important. Right? and the fact that I can't go and worship him in the temple right now should cause tension in my life. It should cause frustration in my life. Like I need to, I need to resolve that. Right? The rebuilt temple indicates that the people still wanted and valued God in their lives. Number two, a rebuilt temple would indicate God was a higher priority than everything else clamoring for the attention of their lives. Right? A rebuilt temple would indicate that God had a higher priority than everything else that was going on. So these are some of the reasons why God would be pleased by it and God would be honored by it, is that it's communicating something. Uh, An intentional effort to rebuild the temple communicates, I want him, he's valuable, right? He has high priority over the other things that would demand attention in their life at that time. Number three, a rebuilt temple would indicate to other nations that God wasn't out of business, right? They're kind of looking on and wondering how important is God to these people? Because in their culture, your temple kind of communicated your value on your God. And so all these other nations are like, okay, Israel's coming back. They've been here for a year. They've been here for two years. They've been here for five years. They've been here for 10 years. They've been here for 16 years. Man, like their temple's still desecrated. Like it's still torn down. Have they changed gods? Do they follow somebody new? Like wh- where's, that, where's that old uh, symbol of national Israel that was so important to them previously, right? Like the other nations are looking onto this and God's saying, if you rebuild this, I'm going to be honored because other, other nations are going to look in and see and peek in and realize there's priority here, right? There's priority here. And then number four, a rebuilt temple would indicate they desired to carry out their covenant responsibilities to God. Because here's the thing, they can't without the temple. It's what's so difficult to even imagine... Jewish people today not submitting to Jesus as the Messiah and living in this state of being where they can't carry out their covenant responsibilities because there is no temple. It's why they long for the temple to be right? Because they want to get back to this old way of worship because it's the only way they know to worship God in the ways that he's revealed himself, because they've rejected what Jesus came to say, right? And so this rebuilt temple indicates their desire to carry out their covenant responsibilities to God. God may be keeping all the covenant responsibilities towards them, but they can't act in obedience towards Him. They can't carry out the things that, that they're supposed to carry out. Okay. There's reasons why this is important, and it's beyond just this structure. Beyond just this structure. Let's see if we can get that to go away. There we go. Okay? So let's look and see what Haggai says to them. He's concerned that they haven't rebuilt the temple. We've seen why it's important for them to do so. So how does he attack this issue? Number one, he tells them to stop making excuses. To stop making excuses. Their reasoning was is that it's, it's not time for this yet. It's not, it's not time for us to rebuild. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord, right? What they have said is that it, it is time for us to rebuild our paneled houses, right? And so Haggai's message comes in here and says, look, stop making excuses, right? Like you've had some excuses over the 16 years for why we are not rebuilding the temple, but now the time of excuses is over right? Like the time of excuses needs to be put behind us. It's time to move forward. It's time to rebuild, right? Um, Number one, our earthly comfort should never exceed our spiritual comfort. Our earthly comfort should never exceed our spiritual comfort, right? What's that mean? It means that we can't prioritize earthly things over spiritual things, right? We can't be happy and content if we've worked things out that we need from an earthly standpoint and yet have neglected completely what we need from a spiritual standpoint, right? We can't say, let me get things in order here from an earthly side of things, and then I'll worry about the spiritual side of things, right? God's God's saying, you gotta reorder your priorities here because it doesn't make any sense for you to have your houses built and yet no way to worship me, right? And so our earthly comfort should never exceed our spiritual comfort. Number two, our earthly endeavors will fail when separated from spiritual endeavors. Our earthly endeavors will fail when separated from spiritual endeavors. Think about what they're doing. They are working hard. They're managing the land hard, right, to increase their wealth and resources. And what do we see them doing with anything that they make financially right now? I mean, they're putting it right back into themselves, right? They're, they're, they're paneling the houses, right? They're, they're, they're restructuring their homes, and, and nothing is being contributed to the house of God here. Um, and, and so what God says is, is that, look, your earthly endeavors are going to fall. They're not going to work. I'm not going to let them come to fruition. I'm not going to let you experience all the, all the positives that would come. I'm going to stop it. I'm going I'm to thwart it some. I'm going I'm I'm to cut it up. I'm not, I'm not going to let you gain all that this world has to offer and it not have any type of impact spiritually, right? And that's a challenge to us, I think, today. Um, while we don't till the ground, most of us, right? Some people have some gardens in their, in their homes um, and, are, and are maybe even using that for a side business. But we don't typically view tilling the ground as like our way to, to, to make our money and to live, right? Other people do that. We work jobs that give us the money to buy their fruit and buy their vegetables and buy their meat, right? But think about it. If our, if our earthly endeavors in the home, in our workplace, if all of those things are designed to increase our earthly comforts, right? If we work hard to get a better job, to get a promotion so that we can put it all back into ourselves, we should expect that God would potentially hinder those endeavors if there's no spiritual impact in our hearts about why we are seeking and doing those things, right? Do we desire a a greater job in order to do spiritual things with it or to do earthly things with it? And I think we have to ask ourselves that question because God challenges us and says, consider your ways. Pause, stop, meditate, and think about what it is you're doing and why you're doing it, right? Before you just continue as is. Our earthly endeavors will fail when they're separated from spiritual endeavors. Think about how the discipline matched to their sin. I already shared this, that they neglected God, so he's cutting off their source of life, which means that we shouldn't, quickly discount the fact that our poor circumstances could be tied to our sinful actions. We talk a ton about how God works good for his children. We've also talked about how we don't want the bad in our life to be a result of sin that he has to discipline us with. Instead, we'd like to know that anything that's bad happening in our life is something that he's using to uh, grow our faith. Right, not not something that we did to deserve these circumstances, but circumstances nonetheless that God brings into our life to use in our life. Right, we're going to have enough of those type of times. We don't need to add to our stress by doing sinful things that would warrant God having to step in and discipline us. And that's what's happening here. They have done intentional things, or they've not done things intentionally, and now God's having to step in and say, "I'm going I'm to stop your I'm gonna stop your produce. I'm going to stop your your physical." Earthly successes to get your attention. So, number one is stop making excuses about it not being time yet to get serious about spiritual things. Number two, start considering your ways. Start considering your ways. Number one, don't assume that your spending is right. He talks about money here, he talks about how they're investing in their houses. Pouring their resources here, right? And it's, they earn wages, but it says they put them into bags with holes, right? Like they're just, they can't even hang on to their money. It's just just gone because God is not allowing it to do what it was designed to do. And so it's costing them. They're making money, they're spending it, but it's not producing the return that they want. It's an encouragement to us, us, I think, to, to not assume that our spending habits are right and to ask ourselves the question, are we, are we spending in order to receive the right fulfillment? Right? And, and I think this is an area, obviously, that we've done a great job as a church as a whole, especially during this time of pandemic where our giving has just increased astronomically. Right? I have no way of knowing if that's because a small portion of our church is giving far more than they previously have given, or if everybody's doing that. I don't care beyond the fact that I care about your soul, right? And I wouldn't want us to make the mistake of thinking, well, this doesn't need to be talked about because our giving is, is fantastic. Because there, there, there may be some people that need to hear that message that says, hey, you're not in that group, right? Like you're not contributing to that and you need to stop and examine your spending habits and make sure that, hey, I am investing in the right things, right, and not in the types of things that'll never bring fulfillment. Because he says, if you do that, you're... you're, you're Uh, bags for your wages just have holes in them, right? Don't assume your spending is right. Number two, don't assume your busyness is good. right, he talks about them being busy, but it's not producing anything, right? It says in verse uh, nine, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Probably busyness is like the number one excuse for why you're not doing something else, right? I'm just, I'm just too busy. I don't have the time to do that. Which is a good excuse when you're protecting the right things, right? When you, when you use the excuse of, look, I don't have time in my calendar. I don't have time in my schedule. I, I don't have the capacity to give myself to that thing because of the other things that I'm doing. That works as long as the priorities are right? If you're using that excuse towards the things that should be the priority in life, but saying, "Hey, I'm too busy for these other things that I'm doing," if if they're not the right things, then the busyness is a concern. The busyness is an issue, right? I've never met somebody who who ever described themselves as not being a busy person. I just haven't. Um, everybody I come in contact with, um, if they're willing to have more than just the superficial conversation of, "Hey, how are you doing? Good? How are you doing? Good?" Right, like. It doesn't take long for them to start to talk about, I've been busy, I'm tired, right? I've I've got so much going on, right? Like, everybody feels that way. So we can just kind of drop the act of thinking that, like, there's something special about us and our schedule and our busyness, but everybody's busy, everybody's tired, everybody has everything demanding their time and attention. It's just a matter of what we choose to give it to, right? Right? Do we have the discipline of being able to say no to the right things? Do we have the discipline to say yes to the right things, right? And build the correct priorities in our life that start with the spiritual things being top, right? And then the other earthly physical things coming next. That's what Haggai wants their attention to to be drawn to. That's why he tells them to stop and consider their ways. Don't assume that you're spending right, that you're investing right, and that you're busy with the right things. Stop and pause and make sure. Number three, serve out of fear and obedience, all right? He wants them to come and do this thing with the temple, but he wants them to do it correctly, to do it out of fear for the Lord and obedience to his word. Look what it says in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, look what they did. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. I mean, this is, this is every pastor's dream, right? I just, I just shared a message with you, and everybody obeyed it. Everybody did it. Everybody responded to it. It says, the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, this high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. They, they, they get things right. They respond. They obey. The Lord stirs in their heart, and they get moved to action here, Right? Number one, consider the Lord and why he deserves our obedience, because that's what they did. They responded in fear for the Lord, not because they were scared of him, right? And maybe, maybe there was a healthy uh, scare there. But they certainly considered the fact that the Lord is worthy of our obedience, right? The goodness that he's shown to us, the promises that he has kept, the faithfulness to the covenant, right? There's a response out of fear to who he is that motivates their actions here. And we too need to consider the Lord and the obedience that he calls us to in our own spiritual lives. As we examine our priorities, as we examine our spiritual uh, actions, are we seeking to be obedient to him out of the proper fear? Number two, be obedient to the Lord through his spoken word. Right? They obey the Lord, but how do they know what the Lord wants? It's through the words of Haggai the prophet. Right? The voice of the Lord through the words of Haggai the prophet. The spoken word changes their activity. Now, Haggai has the benefit here of being like inspired by the Lord. Right? So he's bringing direct revelation to the people about what God wants. Pastors today don't have that advantage, right? Like we're just, we're just recycling old material here, right? Like this is, this is prior revelation that I'm trying to, to, to pull to your attention and help you see the truths and the, the, the responsibilities that we have with it. But everything that's separate from what, what we're reading, right, like I'm, I'm adding to, I'm, I'm ad-libbing and, and trying to share with you what God has taught me from his holy word. But I do believe that there's a precedent of how God speaks through teachers in His Word, using His Word. Right? Like, teachers who don't use the Word are are a concern as to how we submit and how we follow God if if they're not if they're not in love with God's Word and bringing that to our attention. But, but pastors who are faithful to do that, and I strive to be that type of pastor for you, who, who brings God's word on a weekly basis for you to hear from him, hear his voice through my words in the uninspired way, right? Like not the inspired way, but in the, in the, in the most uninspired way, but as close to the inspired way as I can get, right? Like I want you to hear God's voice through me trying to articulate and, and help you understand when, when his words were written in a cultural context to, a, to original people, right? Like, I'm trying to help you see what this means thousands of years later. And I work hard at it, right? And I labor at it. And I get up early to do it, and I stay up late to do it. Why? Because I believe it's important. I believe it's important for you. And I would want to challenge you this morning. Do you put forth the same effort in your listening habits? right? Like, nobody's expecting you to do what I do, right? I'm not expecting you to get up early and stay up late and come ready to preach a sermon. That's, that's, that's my role as the, as the pastor and the elder here of this church. That's my task. And I, and I labor hard and, and labor well because I believe it's important. But I do believe that you have a responsibility to labor well on the listening side of things, Right? To to go to bed at a a decent hour on a Saturday night so that you wake up and you're not exhausted when you come in here, right? To to be intentional, whatever way that looks for you to retain what it is that's being talked about. Some people need to take notes, some people don't need to take notes, right? But coming in and saying, you know what? Like, I want to be obedient to the voice of the Lord through the words of Adam today, right? Like, I wanna connect with God through what his word says and Adam's gonna help me see that today, Do your preparations and actions indicate a high value on what's being said each week? These people heard the word of God. They responded to it in obedience. My heart's desire is that every week you would hear the voice of God and you would respond in obedience to it. And then number three, take action when your spirit is stirred by the spirit. We see this at the end of chapter one where this isn't just like, uh, human-generated stuff, right? Like, it's not that Haggai did just, like, this unbelievable job of presenting God's Word and he was this articulate messenger, right? Sometimes you're gonna find yourself in churches, maybe it's right now, where the pastor's not, like, super engaging for you and your style, right? Like, maybe, maybe he's not just the one who just just captures your attention every week, right? But if he's bringing the Word of God, then the Holy Spirit can stir your heart, because that's the work that's really needed to generate action, not the pastor bringing some great message, right? It's the Holy Spirit stirring our hearts, and it's us not ignoring that stirring, right? Because the people have their hearts stirred, they go to action, they come together, all of them, and they start to rebuild the temple. Stop making excuses, start considering your ways, serve out of fear and obedience. And then number four, stay strong because of his promises. Stay strong because of his promises, and this is what chapter two is all about. It says in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Each time we're reading this, it's that new message. I told you there's four of them. To all the remnant of the people and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehosadak the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. God shows up and... He wants to help the people avoid discouragement by helping them remember his presence and his promises. Because here's the thing, right? Some of these people had been alive long enough to see Solomon's temple. And as they're trying to build this thing back, they're trying to put it back together. Undoubtedly, there's conversations that are happening about, man, it wasn't like this, like the other one, like the other one was awesome. Like it was pretty fantastic. And, and we, we aren't capable of bringing it back to that same glory. We don't have the finances. We don't have the resources. Like Solomon and all of his array of glory was able to invest tremendously in building this thing. And we've just come out of captivity and we're trying to put this thing together. And so God shows up and says, Look, you keep working, right? Quit worrying about if this is as good as the last temple. You keep working and recognize that I am with you, right? And then he draws their attention to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. And he's saying these promises still stand for you. Now, here's what's interesting is that because we know specifically the timetable of when this is happening, we know that Haggai is prophesying, prophesying at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles when the book of Deuteronomy would be read. We find out in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verses 9 through 13 that at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles or as part of that Feast of Tabernacle week, they are to read aloud the book of Deuteronomy. And then what do we see is this message here. It's it's be strong, do not fear. And when we read the book of Deuteronomy, we see that that's the message that's contained there for the people of Israel way back when. In Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6 and 7, this is before they're in the promised land. Look what it says. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. Verse 23. And the Lord commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them, I will be with you. Like Haggai and God aren't just coming up with with a cute catchphrase here, be strong, fear not, right? It's intentional. Because if they were doing what they were supposed to be doing during that that week of Feast of Tabernacles, they would have been reading aloud the book of Deuteronomy and then God shows up and says the exact same message that had been said previously to the people. Right? He's connecting the fact that, hey, same God here, that was with you prior to all this, be strong, courageous, I'm still with you, work hard because my presence hasn't left and I'm still faithful to the covenant. These promises are still possible. Number two, he tells them to keep focused on the finished work rather than the immediate construction. Look what he says in verse six through nine. Let me get back to Haggai. just because this place is under construction right now, that this is the end result. He said this thing's gonna be better. It's gonna be better than the one previously. Now, what he doesn't mean is that it's gonna be better from the physical eye. Right? What he does mean is that it's gonna be better from the spiritual side of things. Right? Think about the fact that Jesus steps foot into the temple, didn't step foot into the Solomon temple, right? Think about the the, the nations that come to, to know uh, come to know Jesus in Jerusalem during the time of Pentecost, right? Like Jesus says, look, or God says, look, like, like, don't, don't, don't get discouraged here about what this looks like. Like it's under construction, but, but think long-term, think big picture about where this is headed. He tells them, number three, to remain grateful and never assume God's blessing is based on one deserving it, right? He also wants to step in and make sure that they don't start to feel good about themselves about building the temple, right? Look what it says in verse 10. Um, On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with the people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did it fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the month, Ninth month, since that day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. Now, what's he saying there? He says, he says, look, if you have something holy, something that's consecrated and designated as holy, if it touches something else, does it become holy? And they respond and say, no. Like, according to our laws and traditions, like we wouldn't count something holy because something, other, something holy touched it. But they do on the flip side, if something is considered unclean and it touches something else, it becomes unclean, right? It's how our health system works, right? Like, um, wouldn't it be nice if the CDC guidelines were, um, if you could just stay around healthy people, their good health will, will, will come upon you right? So drop your mask when you're around healthy people and breathe in their air because they will make you healthy as well, right? Well, that's not the guidelines, right? But the guidelines are you got to stay away from sick people because they'll, they'll contaminate you. The sickness will transfer. Unfortunately, the good health doesn't, right? Like that, that's the stuff of superheroes who can touch and heal, right? Be awesome if, if people who had cancer could come spend some time with people who don't have cancer and stop being cancerous, right? Be great if the response was, when you get coronavirus, go be around people who don't have coronavirus and you'll get better, right? No, the warning is you're going to get everybody sick if you do that. And so the indication here, what he's trying to say is, is that, look, you're, you're sinful people. You can make this work of rebuilding the temple sinful, right? Like if you come in and contaminate it with bad motives and bad, bad ideas and bad thought patterns, what you can't do is make yourself holy by coming and building this temple. And he says, look, I'm gonna bless you and take care of you in response to you doing this, but don't for a second think that you've made yourselves holy by doing this and that you now deserve my blessings. That's the point. That's what he's trying to make sure they understand. They're kind of a confusing passage, but that's what he's trying to communicate there, all right? Um, To remain grateful. Never assume God's blessing is based on one deserving it. And then number four, find hope in the coming judgment of the nation's and the final salvation of the Messiah. And this is how the book closes. It says the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. So two messages one day speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And then it's just over with, right? So what in the world did the last three, four verses here mean? Well, you have to, you have to understand a little bit of the context here. Uh, one, this shaking of the earth, Hebrews gives us some indication here. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25 through 29, it quotes this passage. so we get some real help here because later on we get some direct revelation where the author of Hebrews, maybe Apollos, says, hey, this is what this is what Haggai was talking about. Right. Haggai was saying that this shaking of the earth, it's in relationship to Jesus coming back. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to shake the earth and and all these nations are going to be done away with. But then what does Hebrews say? It says, man, thanks be to God that we're part of a kingdom that can't be shaken, that can't fall. Right? So that's your, that's your divine commentary that, that, that the book of Hebrews gives us about this passage. But why is the rubable and the signet ring so important? Well, rewind a little bit, and there's this guy, Jehoiakim, who was the, the, the king of Israel, and, and he was a real jerk and a real sinful guy and had really brought a curse upon the Davidic line to the point that God said, if you were my signet ring, I would take you off. Right, like you're cursed, the line is cursed. Like, like I'm, I'm not okay with the sin and the things that are happening here. So for God to now come back to Zerubbabel, who's a descendant of, of, this, of this kingly line, and say, hey, we're about to, we're about to get back in, right? Because I've chosen you. And let me just tell you something. He's not ultimately talking about Zerubbabel, right? Zerubbabel's a screw up, right? He came back 16 years ago and tried to build this thing and then adversity came and he was like, we're out of here, like we're not gonna build this. So Zerubbabel's not the Savior, he's not the Messiah. But what God is saying is that I'm not done with the Davidic line and the Messiah is still coming and he kind of re-engages with the Davidic line here and says, hey, signet ring back on, right? You fast forward to Matthew and you read the, the, the lineage of, of Jesus and Zerubbabel's there, right? And so what this is, is, is God like pronouncing loudly hey, my promises are still true, the Messiah is still coming, the shaking is still going to happen, right? Like it, it's, it's reassuring promises to us that God's still in control and there's hope still to come. Now, that's the book of Haggai. What in the world does this mean for us, right? What does this mean for us? Well, the elders have been talking about whether or not we can really fulfill God's ministry in a building like this, right? It's not a special building. It's not a great building. So we've been talking about, like, the need to purchase land, to build a building, right? And so Adam's going to come and share with us a little bit about our building project, right? That's just a big joke, (laughs) right? Just seeing if you're still listening, right? Okay, this is not a book about a building project, okay? Some pastors have done that. Some pastors have used this to kick off their big building project, right? Like, we've got to invest in in God's house. If we're going to invest in our houses, if we're going to live in nice places, God's got to live in a nice place. Thanks be to God that 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 talk about us being the temple now, right? Christ is the cornerstone. He is building us up as this people of God, and we are the temple, right? So we're not looking for some temple to get built. We're not looking for some special church building, right? So the direct application for us has nothing to do with how we take care of this facility. It has nothing to do with long-term vision about facilities, right? What it does apply to us is that we have a responsibility to evaluate our priorities and whether the things of God possess the proper urgency in our life. Are our priorities right regarding spiritual things, regarding the church, Do they have the proper urgency in our life? Do you find yourself being stirred by the things of God regularly? Do you come on Sunday and find your heart being stirred? And if you don't, I I feel fairly confident to say that it's not me because I know that unless I'm missing something greatly, like I'm I'm being very intentional and faithful to bring you God's word on a weekly basis. So if there is never a stirring, never a conviction, right? Then then I, I feel fairly confident to say that it's not me, that there may be something on your end, listening habit-wise, that needs to be addressed. And I would challenge you to consider your ways. Next question that I want you to kind of ponder, and I know we're we're getting short of time, and we may not even do discussion groups today. I may just leave you with these questions to think about. Are you you back to where you were spiritually pre-COVID today with your involvement and your engagement in spiritual things? Think back to where you were before COVID hit. Think back to where you were in church involvement, church engagement, um, church fellowship, intentionality with the people of this church. Are you where you were pre-COVID, or is COVID still impacting your relationship to the church? Are you neglecting God's church or God's people in any way? I want us to go back to why they did not rebuild the temple and why it was so important for them to rebuild the temple, but I want to change the narrative for us in regards to our engagement with church life in light of COVID. And I want us to look at the exact same things that I said, but I want us to apply it to ourselves now as we evaluate where our priorities are, okay? How does this apply to us? I'll just read you these questions. Why haven't you reengaged, all right? We asked them, why haven't they rebuilt the temple? Why haven't you fully reengaged in the church? Number one, Have you adjusted to life in quarantine without the church? Have you developed habits that you're comfortable with, right? You didn't choose the circumstances, just like they didn't choose Babylon. We didn't choose quarantine time. We didn't choose COVID. We didn't choose all this stuff. But I'm going to tell you, as elders, we have talked extensively about the potential bad habits that can be developed with the ease that we are trying to create for people to stay connected in the midst of a pandemic where at some point we have to dial back on the ease and say, hey, it's time to, it's time to, it's time to get back together, right? It's time, to, it's time to regather because what we're commanded to do on Sunday is more than just listen to a sermon, more than just sing some songs, right? There is an important component of fellowship that is tied to this, that's missing greatly. Otherwise, man, I just tell everybody to go home and listen to me at home and we can cut down the travel time, we can cut down all the other time and we can just be done real quick and then get about our day for the rest of the Sunday. But there's more that we're called to on a Sunday than just listening to a sermon. Man, have you developed a mindset of taking care of self as the number one priority with our resources and time management? This idea of re-engaging, because I'm feeling it on my own end too because I'm not above you guys in this, right? Like, um, I'm nowhere near where I was from a hospitality standpoint or from an intentionality standpoint with people in this church. And I find myself justifying it by saying, "Yeah, like, I don't know where everybody's at health-wise. Like, eh, I want to protect people. But here's the thing. Like, like, I'm operating completely differently with people that I go to school with. That, that you know, what I find is that when it benefits me, when, when, it, when it serves me, that I'm willing to kind of drop some of the COVID measures for me, um, but I'm quick to put them up if I feel like it's gonna you know, require more of me than what I wanna give at the time. And, and that may be true for you, that may not be true for you. I'm just challenging you to stop and consider your ways a little bit right now. And let me preface that by saying, I would never ask anybody to do something against their better judgment health-wise, right? Never, I would never ask you to do something against your better judgment health-wise. But I know if we're not careful, we will continue to, to use the excuse of health needs. And we're, and we're completely healthy people that might would use that excuse, right? There's people that need to use that excuse, and it's not an excuse, right? But I know for me, I've used it for myself, and, and I'm, not, I'm not in the medically compromised group, right? Like I, I'm not one that needs to be careful. Like There's no indication to me that I need to be extra cautious because of my health. I just want to challenge you to consider your ways. Are you doing things differently from a church standpoint than you were doing pre-COVID? And are you making excuses to continue to live that way because you have found a way to adjust to life and quarantine without the church the way that you had it pre-COVID? Why is it important? Because I think when we communicate to the, to the people around us, re-engaging in church would indicate that you still want and value God in your life. Re-engaging in church would indicate God is a higher priority than everything else clamoring for your attention in your life. Re-engaging in church would indicate to the lost that God isn't being quarantined, right? Now, I think we've done fairly well on Sunday mornings. You know, we've got people coming. We're still having to kind of put out a notice that, hey, we've still got seats. We've still got room. I'd love to get to the point where, like, we're we're shut down early in the week because this is such a priority for people that the seats are filled up and we're having to talk about how do we, how do we create more seating, right? And I know there's some challenges with, with childcare and we're working to try to overcome that because we literally wanna remove every excuse that the enemy could put into our minds as to why we can't re-engage in the church. But I think we've still got work to do in the area of like D groups and C groups and the engagement and the involvement in some of these things outside of Sunday morning that we're still kind of like back in the shadows with, right? And there's, there's coming a day, and I think we're, we're close to it, where we're going to have to start kind of calling, calling each other out as brothers and sisters in Christ and say, hey, I need you to re-engage. I need you to get back all in like we were pre-COVID, right? For those of you that have seen the Top Gun movie, like I don't endorse the movie. I saw it a long time ago. Um, I try to watch the edited version when I watch it today, okay? Um, but there's a scene at the very end of the movie where like Maverick's in a plane, and like he's completely like, bonkers in his mind and they're in the middle of a battle and like his buddies are screaming at him like we need you to re-engage. We need you to get back in this battle. Right. And then there's a there's a point where the guys on the radio are like, Maverick's reengaging. Maverick's reengaging. Right. And he gets back into the battle and he starts fighting. Right? I feel like that's where we're kind of at with this whole COVID piece. There's still precautions that we need to take. Right? We still gotta come to church with our masks in hand when we need them. But I think we got to start moving in the direction of we're saying, hey it's time to start rebuilding what we had prior to COVID. It's time to get back to some normalcy with our engagement within this church because re-engaging in the church would indicate you desire to carry out your covenant responsibilities to God. We can't be obedient to New Testament stuff if we're not engaged in the local church. There's just too many do this and do that to each other stuff that's in the New Testament that you can't do, you can't do if you're not engaged within the church. I want, you to, cha- I want to challenge you to consider your ways. Because I think every single one of us could answer these things differently about our engagement and why it may not be at the same level as it was before all this quarantining stuff. Some of it's valid. You know. Some of, you, some of you have health issues and health concerns that need to be uh, listened to and I would never tell you to deviate from that. Some of you have other circumstances and things that are legitimate reasons for why you can't get back to the same engagement level. But there may be more of you that are like me and we've just kind of grown comfortable with doing some things and not having to do some things anymore because it's easy to just say, because of COVID, right? My kids have just learned if we tell them no, like they just, they just say like, oh, because of COVID, right? Mom, can I have two suckers tonight? No, sorry. Oh, COVID. Sorry, I forgot, right? Like I, maybe I could have had two suckers if COVID wasn't going around, right? Like we can't default into just saying, ah, because of COVID, like I don't do this anymore. I don't do that anymore. I'm not concerned about this anymore. I think that's the message that Haggai has for us today. Thousands of years later, when we're not worried about a physical temple structure, we still need to be worried about our priorities. We still need to be worried about whether or not we are prioritizing him above all the other stuff in our life. We can't be guilty of tending to all the other stuff in our life and just saying, you know what? It's not time for the spiritual peace yet. I'm, I'm gonna re-engage in all the other stuff. I'm not ready to re-engage here with the spiritual peace. And that, part, that part should be coming first, that part should be the first movement that we see, not the last. I want to challenge you with that today, all right? What we would have done in group questions if I hadn't gone long today is, and you can leave with these thoughts, when you think about God having first priority in your life, what does that look like, and what examples would others see, all right? What does it look like for for God to be number one in your life, and how would other people see that? I told you, Other nations would have seen Israel's priority towards their God by the rebuilding of the temple. I'm not asking you to to start a building project here at Sovereign Hope. But I am asking you to consider your ways. What does it look like for you to be engaged in such a way where God's number one in your life? Serving him through the church is number one in your life. What examples would others see in the way that you structure your calendar, your activity? your resources? Number two, what are some negative spiritual habits we could form as a result of COVID, and how can we push back against them? Hopefully you're aware that some negative habits could be formed during the time of COVID. And if not, you definitely need to consider your ways today, because the elders can give you a list of potential bad habits that we're worried about our church developing during this time. And we want to help shepherd you well through it, and that's why you know I've repeatedly told our guys, hey, we're not going to live stream services for the rest of our church history. Um, I'm, I'm not going to make it easy to skip Sunday and just stay at home and get the sermon because what we do here is more than that. What we're called to do here is more than that. Um, and so, so I want to just challenge you to consider your ways. Consider what you're doing, why you're doing it. Make sure the motivation and heart is right because I think we're still in that gray area of, you know, there's still so many precautions that still need to be taken. I know for me, the nature of my work, um, I, I've got to break free from the mindset of there's some things that I can't do with my church family because I'm just going to tell you, on Thursday, I've got a football game. I'm coaching a football game where I'm going to be around kids that are laying on the ground, rolling around, tackling each other and, and breathing all over each other, right? And so I've got, to, I've got to be at a point in my life where I'm like, if I'm doing that, I surely can't use it as an excuse to not do some other things in my life as well. And I would just challenge you to consider your ways too um, and the priorities that you've set in your life and make sure they are aligned with what we're seeing in the message of Haggai today. Let's pray together. God, I pray that we would be faithful to consider our ways. Um, God, I'm thankful for the message that was brought to this people and I'm thankful that they responded in obedience and they took action and They rebuilt your temple. And uh, God, I pray that we would be very intentional in our spiritual life as well to make sure that we have prioritized you over all else, that we are very intentional to carry out your will. Um, God, that we're willing to engage with church life as much as we're capable of doing right now, still taking the precautions that we need to, but recognizing that, we can't keep using the excuse that it's not time yet for that. It's, um, it, it it's not right for me yet. Like, Lord, I pray that those that need to say that would still say that and feel encouraged to still say that. But God, if there's anybody like me, because I'm, I'm I'm admitting to you, God, that I have I have used that in ways to uh, excuse myself from some responsibilities and have, have allowed myself to feel okay with excusing myself because of COVID. And God, I don't want to be there anymore. And God, I don't want anybody in this church to be there that doesn't need to be still using uh, valid reasons for a lack of engagement in certain areas. God, for those of us that can, Father, I pray that you'd bring us to a state of, of being engaged in this church the way that you had us engaged in it before all this. as much as is possible from a health standpoint, God, because we know that, that this thing is real and, and that you're sovereign over it, though, and we thank you for that. And so, God, give us wisdom in knowing how to continue to navigate this, realizing that, it, that it's not going away anytime soon, but we've got to be very careful that we don't develop some bad spiritual habits that would, would hinder us for years to come. So, God, protect us from that. Help us to re-engage where we need to re-engage. Help us to get busy rebuilding where we need to be rebuilding. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the Word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.